welcome you to this week's Citizens Climate Lobby Training Program. It's a weekly webinar of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight we are lucky to have an extended Q&A with Dr. Adam Simon, our May speaker for the CCL call. So you're going to have the chance to join us for an extended time here tonight. We have the whole hour basically saved for a Q&A to explore your questions further on the topic of transitioning away from fossil fuels and towards clean energy with regards to the massive amounts of metals that go into the production of EVs, batteries, induction stoves, wind turbines, solar panels, you name it. Do enough of these metals exist to get the job done? And where can they be found and can be extracted in a sustainable manner that doesn't lay waste to our environment? That's what we'll be discussing tonight. With that, though, I would love to just introduce our esteemed speaker tonight and then get out of the way to help facilitate this. Dr. Adam Simon is Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Michigan. His work focuses on the global flow of energy and mineral resources with an emphasis on the geological activity of energy-critical minerals. Adam has co-authored two textbooks and published 70 papers in the field of energy and mineral resources. It is such an honor to have you on again tonight. Thank you so much for being here with our volunteers and the floor is yours, Dr. Simon. Thank you very much, Brett, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, so I'm gonna start with three questions that Brett had sent me from people who saw my talk in May. And the first question focuses on essentially the ratio of the metals that we can use from recycling versus those that we need to mine. And the question is how much can reducing our overall consumption of metals help reduce the need for overall demand for expanded mining? How much would it reduce mining by becoming more efficient at recycling currently used products? So the answers are, and I said answers in plural, we, we are getting better at recycling, but we need to continue to get better at recycling. There are some metals that we recycle extremely well. For example, in the United States, we recycle about 76% of our lead, about 60% of our titanium. But when we get to metals such as copper, we only recycle 34%. So one of the things that we need to advocate for are recycling programs in more developed countries where we're consuming metals at a higher rate than, than are consumed in less developed countries. And we need to think about that through the lens also of the energy that it requires to recycle metals versus the energy that it takes to mine metals. If we think about metals such as gold, platinum, nickel, silver, copper, aluminum, chromium, zinc, cobalt, for many of those metals, we save as much as 80 to 90% of the energy by recycling them than if we have to mine them from new mines. And if we translate those energy savings into CO2 emission savings, then the CO2 emissions for recycling are much lower than they, than they are for mining. That said, we will not be able to satisfy the demand only through recycling at least not for the next several decades. It, it is easy to conceive of a world 30, 40, 50 years from now when we have built what we might think of as a circular economy. Everyone drives an EV. We've electrified almost everything in our lives. 
We figured out how to use green hydrogen and green steel. But for the next several decades, we will continue to need to mine metals uh, such as copper, cobalt, nickel, platinum, palladium, et cetera, to build out a renewable energy infrastructure. And the key there is that we need societal pressure through legislative processes to make sure mining is done responsibly. We need to make sure that mining companies adhere to what we can think of as international best practice standards. We need to make sure that mining companies engage with stakeholders at all levels meaningfully and impactfully, not just for PR on a web page, but really put people on the ground to meet with local stakeholders. And I say that through the lens of ultimately, we want the climate to win. And there will be some people who feel that they are losing as we try and push towards a 100% renewable energy infrastructure. So it's important to make sure that we don't steamroll over groups either in the United States, the EU or other places around the world. Especially in the global south, we wanna make sure that when mining is done, it's done following the same set of standards as we require in the United States, Canada, Australia, the European Union, Chile, et cetera. So that our push for electrification does not result in another episode of the resource curse for people in the global south. The second question that someone asked is, um, are there any bill, I, I mentioned several bills in Congress on the May call, and are, any, are, are there any new ones that you're also excited about? Well, I, I was and am excited in the, the two-year permitting requirement that was pushed through Congress and signed into law by Biden when uh, they passed the, um, the debt ceiling resolution. That said, federal agencies now have only a maximum of two years to either approve or deny permits for building any form of renewable energy infrastructure. Uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia also made sure that part of that includes building infrastructure for a natural gas pipeline from West Virginia to the Atlantic. And so I'm excited that that got passed, but at the same time, I think that everyone needs to follow that carefully to make sure that from my perspective, and I assume a lot of people on this call, what I want is I want companies who propose mining, building new renewable energy infrastructure, utility scale wind, utility scale solar. We need lots of new transmission lines. I want those, those applications to reach a final decision in two years instead of what currently can be anywhere from five to 10 years. I don't want the relaxation on the NEPA timeline to result in lots of new fossil fuel infrastructure completion. I think that would be a mistake because it would lock us into fossil fuels for X number of years um, out. Um, if you didn't get a chance to see it, Yesterday on Capitol Hill at 9 a.m., Senator Manchin and the Energy uh, Council, they had a hearing that was somewhere on the order of two and a half to three hours, and they interviewed several people who provided testimony on the need to decrease the length of time it takes to permit, 
I think it was a really excellent hearing and you can download the comments from each one of the witnesses. I think they're all worth a read. Um, and and I, I, I continue to watch that. So I'm excited about that. And then um, the final question was, you had mentioned the importance of developing a more intentional process of early engagement with Native American governments, given how many mining locations are proximal to Native American land. Could you expand on the best ways you've heard these processes could be improved and innovated to center decision-making with their interests? I would refer everybody to the National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL. They have an entire program at NREL that focuses on building relationships with Native American communities. And if you type in NREL state, local, and tribal governments, they have an entire set of um, papers dedicated to decision support for tribes. I don't have the magic pill. I, I use NREL's uh, materials when I teach these topics in classes. I think that they have done as good a job, if not a better job than almost everyone at really trying to impress upon the larger community how Native American communities view their land through the lens of colonization in the 15, 16, 17, 18, 1900s. I just spent five weeks teaching an energy course in the state of Wyoming, and we spent two days with representatives from the Eastern Shoshone tribe and the Northern Arapaho tribe. And, you know, it's it's really interesting and um, and and to to listen to them talk about treaties such as the Treaty of Fort Laramie and how over the last several hundred years, Native American lands have just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the federal government through the Bureau of Indian Affairs has not done the job that they were established to do. So what I think we also need to do is we need to make sure that the, the we need to make sure that legislation and community support for indigenous communities remains a really strong part of any renewable energy construction, any mining on indigenous lands. You know, when I've met with people from indigenous communities, one of the things that they're concerned about, and I think this is absolutely justified, is that when we propose mining, for example, copper on attractive land in Southern Arizona, that mine, it will provide jobs for a finite period of time. And what has not happened in a lot of indigenous communities in the United States, they have not seen mining programs or new mines constructed that leave behind a better community than existed prior to mining at the end of mining. So any mine, whether it's copper or gold or silver, it's gonna operate for 10, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and what happens at the end of life? So one of the things that I've started advocating for is working with indigenous communities to help them understand the potential to build renewable energy infrastructure on Native American lands, and then use the sale of that electricity from wind and from solar on Native American lands to actually build capacity 
on Native American lands. I think that's something that has a lot of potential. There is a recent report, if you haven't seen it, from the Nature Conservancy. They did an excellent job where they mapped nationally where solar and wind are being built, sort of business as usual, and where solar and wind can be built, taking into consideration the importance of place. And I, I strongly encourage people to read that because I think it does a really good job of at least in a cursory fashion explaining how we can get to a 100% renewable energy infrastructure grid without sacrificing individuals and communities. And those were the three questions, Brett, that came through earlier. Yes, no, that was a great summation of a lot of the questions that we've sent. And now that has also given us time for us to start building a wonderful catalog uh, for us to pull from for the rest of Q&A here. So thank you so much, Dr. Simon, already for uh, speaking on behalf of all of those um, angles and important considerations that I know a lot of our volunteers have been curious about. So this first one, Adam, is a follow-up from your recycling question from Susan. Are those recycling rates that you mentioned earlier, assuming that folks and companies are taking them from recycling, or is that crawling through mine tailing piles and landfills that are meeting the demand for the next few decades? Assuming the not the latter, but just wanted to confirm. Susan is correct. So those are the, the best estimates for how much of a given metal is recycled back into the supply chain. And that is predominantly, you know, you and me taking our aluminum cans back to the grocery store to be recycled. But you bring up a really good point, and I'll emphasize, um, I, I wanna make a comment about it now, that when we think about the metals that we need for renewable energy infrastructure, we've been mining most of those metals for, you know, in the case of copper, think of the stone age to the copper age. And there are mine tailings at every mine on the planet, including mine tailings at every mine in the United States. And there are companies now that are focusing their efforts on, well, what could we get out of the already existing mined rock that's just sitting on the surface somewhere? And I think there's a lot of potential there, but we don't actually know how much metal we might be able to get from those. So, you know, I sort of watch that um, optimistically. All right, this next one is from Dana, and it has to do with a lot of the cobalt mining in the DRC and all of the child labor and health safety standards and violations and concerns that people have about cobalt mining. How much cobalt can be safely mined within the US? Is there anything that can replace cobalt in batteries but give the same stability? And a follow-up, is there, this is bigger, but is there really enough mineral resources within the US to alleviate demand in the global south and what would incentivize companies to source those minerals ethically? It's a big question. So can we replace cobalt? I think the answer is yes. And I think we're seeing that now with different battery types where they are changing the ratios of, for example, nickel to cobalt. And companies are making progress on this almost, I mean, for them on a daily basis. And we're hearing it every week. You know, recently at, a, at an auto show in China, there's a Chinese car company that unveiled a new, it's a salt battery, requires no cobalt, requires no nickel. And everyone initially scoffed, but they were able to produce 
that salt battery electric vehicle, which is roughly equivalent in size and range to a Chevy Bolt for under 10,000 US dollars. So I also am really excited by what seem like every week new announcements from different EV and battery manufacturers around the world, figuring out how to produce new batteries that require less cobalt. You know, one comment on the child labor, just to make sure that when we think about cobalt and child labor in the DRC, I think it's important for us to remember that that was effectively how we mined in the global north through the 1800s. You know, if you look at coal mining in Appalachia in 1900s and you look back at what we called the breaker boys, where boys, you know, as young as four, five, six would go into the mines and literally break up big pieces of coal so that they could disaggregate them. The DRC, when you, when you travel to the DRC and you meet with and you see families where you might have a father and son mining, for them, that is the only economic option. And I think it is often the case in Western media that we, we somehow vilify child mining. We have to remember that we employed children to mine for probably thousands of years. And if we think about reducing our dependence on cobalt from the DRC, imagine we could possibly eliminate our need for, for cobalt from the DRC. There still needs to be significant work to build capacity there. So we can't just stop exporting and importing cobalt from the DRC. We have to really think about building capacity. Do we have cobalt in the United States? Absolutely. In central eastern, well, say sort of central Idaho, there is an area that geologically is referred to as the Idaho Cobalt Belt. And there is an Australian company that has tried to get a new cobalt mine off the ground. The plan was to, to mine cobalt in Idaho and actually ship it to a refinery in Brazil because there's no refinery in the U.S. for that product. The price of cobalt right now makes it impossible to build new mines in Idaho, but we have the cobalt. In addition to the price, the cobalt mines are also located on indigenous lands that are held sacred by Native American tribes. So yes, we have cobalt, but it's not it, it, it's not straightforward to be able to extract it. Thank you so much, Dr. Simon here. So here's uh, two different questions that are kind of really coming at the same essential nature of trusted messaging. A lot of, uh, Annalisha asks, uh, you know, mining support is gonna be a difficult ask for more progressive individuals. Do you have any tips on talking with progressives about mining or aspects that would appeal to them? And connected to that, Larry asks, you know, your message seems convincing, but it goes against the grain for many environmentalists. If we were to ask for a second opinion from other qualified climate concern scientists or engineers, would they say the same thing? Is there consensus emerging supporting the recommendations that you have? I, I would say everyone in the know, for everyone in the know, there's consensus. And I, I agree with Larry that it is really challenging to talk with people who come into the conversation with knowledge about historic mining practices and recent tragedies such as the tailings dam failure in Brazil a few years ago and the tailings dam failure in British Columbia about a decade ago. What I, what I like to say, or the way I like to, to think about this is that 
if we all accept all of the climate models done by incredibly bright people all over the world, there is 100% agreement among all climate models that current average temperatures are about 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial periods. And we know right now that if we continue using the same energy resources at an increasing rate year over year, so globally we're using more oil year over year, we're using more natural gas year over year, there are still coal-fired power plants being built. India has 1.5 billion people, the largest democracy by population on the planet. They have significant access to coal, and that's the easiest resource that they could use to electrify all of India. If we want the climate to win, that's the ultimate winner. The only choice that we have is to eliminate our current consumption of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas. And I say that that's our only choice because I'm very optimistic about direct air capture and carbon storage at some point in the future. But right now, it is not an economic viability. Capturing carbon from air and storing it is right now prohibitively expensive. And no one has seemingly proposed a, a pollution fee on CO2 that would allow society to absorb those costs. So if we want climate to win, we have to significantly increase the amount of electricity available globally to transition everything that we're using or as much of everything as we're using to electricity. Heat, hot water, air conditioning is currently electric, induction stoves, electric dryers. We need everyone to transition and we're seeing that happen. In 2022, there were nearly 600,000 battery electric vehicles purchased in the United States. That's a record. In 2022, if we look at the number of new solar installations and wind installations and grid-scale battery storage measured by capacity additions, they are on an exponential pace. I recommend everybody to read a recent report from Amory Lovins and his group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, where they look at the growth curves for solar and wind and battery. And they talk about those growth curves in terms of exponential growth versus S-curve growth. And right now, wind, solar, and battery are growing exponentially. In order to electrify, we need the metals. There, there's no alternative. I wish there were, but there's no alternative. And this, I think, is, is to Larry's question, what we really have to do when we talk with people who are anti-mining is we have to hopefully slowly move them by, by reminding them and us that we want the climate to win. That's our number one priority. And if we look at every possible pathway to get to net zero by 2050, it requires increasing the availability of metals to build wind, solar, battery electric vehicles and grid scale battery storage. There's no alternative. I think that on the, the, the side of the mining companies, they have sort of remained silent on the sidelines because they've been able to meet demand that has grown since roughly World War I and World War II. And they have not done a good job at promoting themselves. So they fall prey to the, if it bleeds, it leads. Every time there is a disaster, that's what everyone sees. And as tragic as a tailings dam collapse is, 
for one disaster, there are several thousand successes, but we don't talk about the successes. Here's two from Gary. One is your stance on the pros and cons of do you favor deep sea mining? And the second is what do you think is the solution to the creation of the many billions of tons that, of waste that come with all these mining of minerals? I, I, I will say personally, I favor an all of the above approach. There are a lot of startups that are exploring various aspects of deep sea mining manganese nodules. We right now only, we can only model the potential negative impacts of deep sea mining. So I think it's, it's a wait and see and continue to put pressure on the, um, you know, the international law of the sea treaty organizations to make sure that deep sea mining is not done haphazardly but that there is a set of international standard, standards that mining companies have to follow. If it works out that deep sea mining offers us the ability to extract all of the metals we need from manganese nodules at a smaller ecosystem impact than mining on dry land, I would support that 100%. But right now, I don't think we have enough data to know whether or not, A, we can extract all of the metals we need from deep sea mining, and B, what will the, the overall impact on the aquatic ecosystem be by deep sea mining? Um, and then I, so I think I answered that, but I also wanted real quickly, because I saw Gary mentioned something about Simon Michaud, um, who wrote this really long couple hundred page report from the Geological Survey of Finland. We have the metals that we need. I mean, I think that's what I want to make sure everybody understands. We don't have to mine asteroids. We don't have to go to Mars. Geologists have found all of the copper and the cobalt and the nickel in places on Earth where we can mine it. What we have to do is we have to mine it responsibly. And we have to mine it at a rate that is unprecedented in human history. And what are your thoughts, uh, given that, about waste and the best way to deal with all of the billions of tons that may come from any of those mining processes? I, I, well, I think um, Gary's spot on. I think mining companies need to be pressured or legislatively required to do a much better job recycling 100% of the water that they use. So when we think about mining lithium in the, the lithium triangle, Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, that is an incredibly water-stressed area. And the way that mining lithium is done there now is by simply putting wells into the ground and pumping lithium-bearing water from subsurface aquifers and then just letting sunlight evaporate off that water. And that allows us to predict negative consequences now and into the future. So there's a lot of engineering technology being developed now that, uh, that will allow mining companies to extract lithium and then put all of the water back underground. Some of this research is being driven um, by oil and gas companies who recognize that there are a lot of lithium bearing brines in oil fields in the United States, and they have the financial resources to develop these technologies. I just put a, a one page proposal into the National Science Foundation with a faculty member in engineering here working on that technology. So I think you know mining companies 
it might seem to us that they're slow to modify their processes. But I think what we're seeing now, especially in countries such as Chile, which forced a referendum to rewrite their constitution, is we're seeing a lot more legislative requirements on mining companies that they have to reduce their impact. I'll highlight Chile also, which is the first country that legislatively now disallows mining companies from landfilling all of the tires from all of their mine vehicles. And there is a new plant being built in Antofagasta, Chile, which is the world's first commercial recycling facility for mine tires. And when we think of mine tires, we might imagine they're just rubber. But when you recycle a mine tire, you're recycling all of that rubber. You're also recycling steel that is woven into the fabric of the tires. That is going to become the new normal for mining globally. These are incredibly helpful. We are halfway through our Q&A and we're halfway through our question list here. So this is going great. Um, Dr. Simon, here's a couple of uh, connected questions uh, given kind of your earlier uh, discussion uh, with Gary mentioning uh, the research being done with Simon Rousseau and others about scarcity of certain metals. Um, one of the questions that is connected to this, Mike writes, I've read that the following mineral supplies are critical over the next 15 years. And then he lists five metals that I'm going to steer you towards the <laughs> Q&A for so that I don't mispronounce, but diprosorium. Yeah, so these are all the rare earth metals. Perfect. So could you shed a little light on what these are used for, where the supplies yep. come, and if they really are critical or are you know, possibly able to be mined at the rate that we need them to? So, so these are all part of what we call the rare earth elements or rare earth metals. And there are several concerns for these. One is that China, as a country itself, is responsible for about 60% of global mining of rare earth metals. And China is responsible for 100% of the final processing of rare earth metals. Rare earth metals are vital for some applications. For example, some rare earth metals, such as neodymium, they are used to build the permanent magnets in motors for electrical cars. They're used to build the permanent magnets for motors in wind turbines. They are used for a variety of defense department applications. So if you've ever seen somebody wearing night vision goggles, night vision is courtesy of one of the rare earth elements. And all of the radar equipment that the Department of Defense uses relies on, on rare earth elements. In the United States, we only have one mine that is currently extracting rare earth elements, and it is at Mountain Pass, California, right on the border of California and Nevada, give or take two to three hours southwest of Las Vegas. And all of that extracted ore is actually put on a ship and sent to China for final processing. We have enough rare earth metals that we could I don't think we have to worry about them, but I'm also really optimistic about new technologies that have eliminated the need for rare earth metals. And I'll direct you to a recent uh, patent technology at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, where they put out a press release at some point last year for a new technology for utility scale wind turbines that does not require any rare earth elements. And they are now moving to the commercialization stage. And I'm sure if it's not already happened, 
there's a startup that's going to be started and then it will start to produce these. So again, similar to batteries, I think we're seeing a lot of innovation now by engineers and chemists around the world who recognize not only, who, really who recognize um, the, 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 the strategic challenge of rare earth metals being controlled by one country. And so they're inventing alternatives. Excellent. And I've just been following along and trying to put the links that you're recommending in the chat for anyone interested. So that enroll uh, press release is there for further information. Um, here's another question connected to critical mineral supplies from Joe up in the uh, Upper Peninsula. Uh, what are the most uh, few most critical minerals in short supply in the near term, five to 10 years? And what are their applications for transport, electronics, you name it? Thank you. So if you look at, and, and my go-to is always S&P Global. So if you look at S&P Global benchmark, um, well, S&P Global market intelligence, the metals that we are most concerned with are lithium for lithium ion batteries. And right now, based on the current increase year over year compound annual growth rate for um, adoption of battery electric vehicles, there's a shortage of lithium by 2025. Cobalt is also used in batteries, and there's a shortage of cobalt globally by 2026. Nickel used in batteries, there's a shortage of nickel by 2026. Copper, there's a shortage by 2026. So these are the metals that are fundamental to the, the uh, renewable energy resources currently being manufactured um, and driving electrification. If we could imagine transitioning from a lithium ion battery, which also requires copper, cobalt, nickel, manganese, graphite, to batteries that rely on salt. Salt is incredibly abundant. We have salt resources underground in the Great Lakes regions. And in reality, we could extract salt from the ocean water. So it's almost an infinite resource. But all of the metals I just mentioned are the ones that we're concerned about within the next three to six years. You know, that there are some big announcements that have occurred. Um, Lithium Americas has announced that they, they have at least passed the last legal hurdle to move forward with their Thacker Pass lithium deposit in Northern Nevada near the Oregon border. And they anticipate being able to produce lithium by, 20, by 2026 or 2027. That amount of lithium will produce somewhere in the order of as we currently build them, a million lithium ion battery electric vehicles. So we'll have 1 million and we need to replace 16 million battery, we need to replace the 16 million combustion engine vehicles we buy now. So these are all really near term shortages that we're talking about. Incredibly helpful. And the most upvoted question here still comes from Newt, uh, Dr. Simon, uh, following back up with cobalt and other needed metals available for extraction in the Canadian Shield formations in the Upper Great Lakes region. We were just talking about this actually before um, opening up the uh, discussion tonight. If so, Newt asks, can they be just extracted in a socially and environmentally sustainable manner? I, I would say the answer is yes. And, you know, Canada, in my opinion, is probably, if not the, the leader in the planet. It's, the, it's one of the, the countries in the world that I think does an excellent job, at least from my experience, I haven't worked on the ground, but from everything I can read and listen to and watch, 
They have done a really good job and continue to do a really good job nationally and within provinces to build relationships with um, indigenous communities in Canada. So to Newt's question, the answer is yes. There's a lot of potential to produce cobalt and copper and other metals from deposits in Canada. And they have a long-standing track record going back decades of doing the right amount of work needed to build relationships with stakeholders at scale, across all scales. Thank you so much. Um, these next two questions, Adam, are about mining in water areas. One comes from Gary about some of the most critical mineral reserves, 70%, according to World Bank, um, are in water-stressed areas. And what do you do about that? And on the flip side, Tom is writing about mining moratoriums um, with sulfide mining, given acid drain mine, acid mine drainage, um, and the proven laws that are out there, and what your thoughts are on the solution of sulfide mining in water-rich environments to protect those waters. Yeah, so I, I agree 100% with Tom. And if I if I seem to imply there's not any issues, I'm sorry, I take that back. I mean, I know there are still concerns with respect to acid mine drainage when we mine coal and we mine metals where the sulfides react with surface waters and groundwaters and can lead to acid mine drainage and have major impacts, negative impacts on local ecosystems. I think that the concerns in Wisconsin and in Northern Minnesota and other areas around the United States on this topic are justified. And I, I, what I think we need to do is, this is an area where we need legislative policy with stakeholder input and mining company input to make sure that if mining is done, it can never be zero possibility for acid mine drainage but as close to zero as possible. Um, with respect to, to mining in water stressed areas, or for example, in Arizona, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I think that this is where mining companies should be encouraged slash required to recycle all of the water that they consume. You know, one, one of the areas, and I was just there two weeks ago, um, there's a beautiful little town called Pinedale, Wyoming, which is about a two hours southeast of Jackson, Wyoming. And Pinedale really started making the news during the second Obama administration because they started, natural gas companies started using hydraulic fracturing to really increase the amount of natural gas that was being produced. And Pinedale is just on the west side of the Wind River Mountains that run north, north, south, and central Wyoming. And in the wintertime, there's a lot of snow that falls. So you have 100% reflection of sunlight. And all of the water for hydraulic fracturing was being trucked in. And all of those trucks are burning diesel. And all of that NOx emissions was reacting with sunlight to create ground level smog. Fast forward 10 years, and now the natural gas companies recycle 100% of the water that they use, so they have effectively eliminated the trucks, um, the need for trucks. Um, so I, I think, you know, mining companies may be slow to modify their practices, but that is a great example where local the local community pushed back, worked with state and federal policymakers and the mining company and put in place 
um, reckon, well, put, put in place requirements that have now eliminated that ground level smog as a direct result of all the diesel trucks. I have to say how impressed I am with the level of depth that you're able to fit in with each of these on such a time frame. Lois is um, asking, I can totally understand the focus on sensitivity to Native American nations when it comes to additional mineral mining needed on their lands for more minerals. What about other communities being hauled out as well by the transition away from coal? So I'll, I'll touch on that one for Lois. You know, I, I just spent five days in Gillette, Wyoming three weeks ago with an energy class that I take out there from the University of Michigan. And we spent the first day in Gillette at Rawhide, which is a large coal mine that produces about 10 million tons of coal per year. And then we literally drove across the street to the, um, there's a coal-fired power plant that was finished in about 2010. And that coal-fired power plant, when it was constructed, they built into it carbon emission, carbon uh, they built into it the ability to scavenge CO2 from the waste stream, but they don't do it now because there's no market. So they're, they're not able to charge what it would cost them to capture the CO2 and permanently store it, and there's no market. But you bring up a great point, and this is one of the reasons we meet with community leaders in Gillette, including local politicians and people who are working to attract companies to Gillette. For those, that, those of you who don't know, Gillette, Wyoming was a sleepy little cow town in 1969. And in 19, early in the 1970s, when the Clean Air Act required utilities to reduce the emissions of SO2 from burning coal, coal companies, utilities and coal mining companies started looking for low sulfur coal. And all of the sulfur that's mined in Gillette is, is in an area we call the Powder River Basin. And the Powder River Basin has low sulfur coal. So the population of Gillette and coal production starting in about 1970 just took off. And there are now about 5,000 men and women who wake up every day and they punch in and punch out at a coal mine. Starting salaries for a high school graduate, 18 years old, who can get their commercial driver's license, starting salaries are between 50 and $60,000 a year. No community college required, no four-year college degree required. And when we meet with people in Gillette, they're really concerned because they now have their third generation of people for whom mining coal has literally put bread on the table. So there is a lot of interest in Wyoming. In fact, if today is Thursday, three days ago on Tuesday, my class met with uh, Governor Gordon of Wyoming. And the governor of Wyoming, for those of you who haven't looked at him, he is among, I would say, the standouts in the Republican Party who acknowledges climate change, acknowledges that we need to work to mitigate our impact on the climate, and is focused on attracting new jobs to the state of Wyoming that will allow an area like Gillette, where if we have 5,000 coal miners and we have a multiplier of five service industry jobs per coal miner, that's 30,000 jobs that right now depend on mining coal. How do you replace those? You know, we can't expect everybody to put everything in a U-Haul and just drive away. So we have to respect people and not, and, and again, not vilify them because they're mining coal, but we need to respect them and we need to work for solutions that allow their community and their way of life to continue 
if there is no more coal mining in that particular area. And I think this holds true for a lot of towns in Texas and Oklahoma. You know, this this importance of place is something that that all humans feel, right? I mean, people in Ann Arbor, I'm in the church. If you live in Ann Arbor, it is the greatest place on the planet. And imagine if somebody decided they were going to shut down the University of Michigan. So I think, you know, we really need to think about and respect people in areas around the country that look at the Rust Belt in the 60s and 70s and don't want to become that. I think that approach really resonates with us and our volunteer network here too, Dr. Simon. And um, the next question uh, connected to an earlier discussion that you'd had is the kind of accelerating the timeline. What um, Gary asks, how would you see accelerating the timeline to bring a new mine to commercial operation and reduce the current 15 year average? Well, I'll, I'll lump that one with one on the bottom, which is about a specific bill in Congress to help Great. address the mineral shortage. And what, what, I, what I would like to see happen is if there, if there is an, as much energy focused on making sure that we have the mineral supply that we need to build everything electric, as we currently see Secretary Granholm and the DE, DOE dedicating to all of the downstream production, that's what we need. I think that somehow has been, it's absent from the con conversation. And I think it's because it touches on some of the questions and some of my comments over the last 45 minutes. For most of us on the left, myself included, when I grew up, I remember learning about how bad mining was. I remember learning about the smog in LA in the 40s and 50s and New York City in the 60s and how bad the steel industry was from a pollution perspective. And for many of us on the left, that's what we imagine when we imagine mining. And I don't pretend that mining is crystal clean. You know, we're not going to have a mine where we're going to go and eat off the mine floor. That's never going to happen. But what we need at the federal level is we need policy that is specifically focused on the upstream supply of critical minerals. Right now, we have four, five, six hundred billion dollars that are going towards all of the downstream components, manufacturing batteries, manufacturing battery electric vehicles, manufacturing solar panels, manufacturing wind turbines. But what, what we don't see in the Biden administration is at least publicly the, re the, the, the reality that in order to build all of that electrification infrastructure, we need these critical minerals. And so what I would really like to see is, you know, an equivalent Jigger Shah or at the Biden administration level, have a small group of people with expertise in this area who can, you know, some sort of task force. He has a task force on environmental justice that came out with Justice 40 that's fantastic. He really needs to convene a task force to aggregate all of the reports that are coming out of the National Sciences Academy and so many other nonprofits, Rocky Mountain Institute, so that he can fully understand and then he can decide how at the federal level he is going to support both by policy and by way of tax incentives and direct spending, the upstream supply of critical minerals. Excellent. Thank you so much, Adam. What about this one from George about a carbon-based wire as a replacement for copper wires? That That is, I, I have followed it. I also know that there are some utility-scale wind farms in the United States that have replaced copper with aluminum. 
So for example, in Glen Rock, Wyoming, Rocky Mountain Power on a reclaimed coal mine has built a utility scale wind farm. And when they built that wind farm, they decided to use locally aluminum wiring and not copper. Now, there's a trade-off there. Aluminum is a lot more abundant on the surface of the earth. Aluminum is a lot less expensive, but overall its electrical conductivity is less than copper. But they made that decision on economic grounds that they could switch to aluminum from copper. So I think, you know, I watch this every single day when I see people, you know, somebody announces that instead of using graphite as the anode, they figured out how to use silicone as the anode. So, you know, again, all of the above, and it's really exciting to see companies looking at carbon-based wire instead of copper. Excellent promise to hear. All right, so how about this broader question as well from Jim then about given best practices, we've already touched on some of this here, but in summation, maybe a little review again of in mining, what must we have, uh, given best practices in mining, what we must have, what price are we likely to pay for air, water, or environmental impacts? Right now, we are globally on a trajectory to see global temperatures increase by more than two degrees C relative to pre-industrial concentrations, co temperatures. So if we continue on our current trajectory, we're going to see the catastrophic effects that climate scientists can model will happen. We're gonna see not only sunny day flooding in Miami, Florida, but we're gonna see Miami, Florida not exist as a city because the Atlantic Ocean will encroach and overcome it. So again, I think we have to focus on climate has to be the winner and we have to do everything we can to reduce the overall human impact on the environment. Helpful framing. Thank you so much for sharing that, especially in our own conversations. Um, Joe asked this question. We have two left here, um, and then we'll kind of share where you can find this after tonight and go for further discussion. Um, I like the idea of microgrid power plants run by congressional districts. Too radical an idea. What are your thoughts on that? I love them also. You know, if you look, for example, at co-ops around the United States, cooperative utilities, Jackson, Wyoming has a cooperative utility, Lower Valley Energy. The model for a co-op is way better than the for-profit model for most of the utilities, including the one that, that is in my own backyard. Lower Valley Energy, as of 2022, they are producing and selling electricity for something on the order of 6.3 cents per kilowatt hour, all-inclusive, 6.3 cents per kilowatt hour, including the distribution charge. So, you know, when, when we look at models for producing electricity, I really think that the cooperative model is one that as many municipalities that can possibly do it should do it. And I know here in the city of Ann Arbor, we have a phenomenal person now directing our sustainability efforts, Missy Stoltz. And the city of Ann Arbor is really looking at this. There are challenges. For example, in the city of Ann Arbor, we don't have the ability to, to use wind turbines. We don't have enough land for solar unless we convert our golf courses. So if we got rid of the golf courses, then we could have enough community solar. Um, but yeah, I, I think having local microgrids is fantastic. And then the last one is any idea where the tribes stand on mining? It, it's mixed. I think there are some in the Native American community who want to see 
an infusion of revenue from the new mining that might happen. And there are many in the Native American communities who are really anxious about opening their lands up for new mining. And considering the new movie Oppenheimer and all of the controversy that it's receiving, if we look at only the last few weeks of really tear-jerking, for all the right reasons, op-eds written by people in the Native American community in New Mexico and other parts of the Rocky Mountain Front where uranium mining happened just unabated in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so the, the community is mixed. And I think that it is the broader our responsibility to make sure that we listen with the intent to understand, not simply with the intent to reply. Amen to that. And you're getting a lot of love in the chat from some Ann Arbor CCLers about the golf course comment as well, Dr. Simon. Um, so we are close to the top of the hour. And just given the wealth of background research and scholarly expertise you have on this, I do want to just give you a couple of minutes here. If you have anything that you were hoping to say in closing or in counsel for us as advocates on this front, we are so grateful for your time tonight again and just want to give you the final floor. You know, all I'll say is something I think I've said several times in the last hour. We have to put the climate first and we have to look at all possible pathways to avoid one and a half to two degrees of warming. I strongly recommend, if you haven't seen it yet, the Net Zero America report that was published by a group of Princeton engineers a couple of years ago. Net Zero America is a phenomenal, robust, quantitative report that details various pathways that prevent atmospheric temperatures from hitting one and a half to two degrees. And one of them is 100% renewable energy through electrification. We have to put the climate first and we have to advocate for an all of the above approach while making sure that we don't allow any form of mining or new transmission to negatively impact communities. We need to make sure that we have stakeholder buy-in. Here's to that. And that's definitely one of our critical pr uh, pillars and principles as we are advocating for clean energy permitting reform as well. And we believe that we can do those two in combination. After tonight, if you're interested in any further discussion, there's been a lot of robust participation by people on the line tonight. I see at cclusa.org forward slash nerd corner. You can ask any questions of our research team there. But what I'd love to do is close tonight. Yes, that is real. We have a wonderful community called Nerd Corner. Thanks to Danny Richter. It was a great vision. I'd love to just unmute all lines so that we can close tonight by giving a lot of love and appreciation to you, Dr. Simon. So thank you all so much again for being here tonight. The lines are unmuted, and let's end by giving a big round of applause for Adam and his availability and expertise. Thank you very much. Thank Adam you. Simon. Thank you. That was really Thank awesome. You, Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. 
Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.